Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Saturday to you. This is Cliff, your host of Earth Ancients, and it is November the 8th. We're into the thick of the month. Good day. So, how are you? So much talk about going on right now. Lots of lots of uh, activities uh, on the Facebook page, Earth Ancients. This morning, just this morning, I posted a, a new temple, an Egyptian temple that was discovered in the back garden of a palace uh, in the Giza area. And they're estimating that the site's over 3,000 years old. And they've just begun to excavate it, and they have found not only the base of a number of columns of this temple, but limestone blocks with unusual hieroglyphs and uh, statues and other fragments. And and it was funny because... uh, the police caught him digging in this guy's backyard, <laughs> and um, the the trench that they, they were digging, I guess uh, they had found uh, some artifacts on the surface, and they were digging down to see what else they could find, uh, was filling in with water, and um, uh, the neighbors and the, the, the guy who owned the property actually <clears throat> called the police. And when they began excavating uh, in seriousness and in, in, in full equipment, uh, what they discovered was not only uh, uh, the foundations, but uh, what looks to be a significant structure. So that was posted. I posted it a couple hours ago. The title is Ancient Egyptian Temple Discovered in the Back Garden. 
sacred stones engraved with hieroglyphics unearthed in Giza. Uh, I imagine that there's so much left to discover there that uh, this is the tip of the iceberg, but uh, it's interesting that to, to consider. The, um, the other uh, bit of news, and it's been in the news quite a bit, uh, Dr. Robert Schock reported on uh, the uh, Ganug Padang Pyramid in Indonesia, uh, and Graham Hancock's been reporting uh, on it quite a bit. But recently, um, they have discovered uh, through uh, imaging that there are a number of rooms in this pyramid. And this pyramid is, is quite large, um, and they've just scratched the surface. But what they, um, what they found about a week ago, and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Nina Danny is the... Um, He's actually a geologist who has been empowered by the governor of uh, Indonesia to actually carry out these uh, excavations. They have discovered, or he has recently discovered, what looks to be some type of uh, metal capacitor. And he uses the term capacitor because he believes it was used in some kind of electronics of uh, some form. Now, it's pretty uh, damning to, to call it a capacitor. Uh, some have called it a metal, a metal device of some kind, um, but he calls it a capacitor because he believes, and some of the other people in his team believe, that it had some form of ability to run uh, an, a current, an electric current. Um, now, I have, there's no pictures of this device. Um, what I did... Uh, post about a week ago is some um, metal that was found on the site. And by the way, it's Dr. Danny Hillman. It's not Dr. Danny. I said it's Dr. Danny Hillman, and he is the geologist in charge of this. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, Robert Schock has come back and uh, revealed that the uh, different of the different levels of this pyramid, the deepest, I think it's the fifth level, is dated to approximately 20,000 years old. So this is a significant find, and um, uh, we're waiting to uh, see more uh, about this so-called capacitor. Uh, but if you read uh, a posting uh, on the Facebook Earth Ancients page, uh, it's an electrical device. Um, and uh, he calls it a capacitor, but uh, it's being kept under lock and key uh, while they're uh, conducting analysis on it. It's a significant find. Uh, that whole area is a significant find, a uh, significant discovery, and I really urge you to keep an eye on what's going on there. Uh, it, it could really be uh, some ground-breaking uh, discoveries. So um, so it's quite interesting. Um, my guest today is somebody uh, I have been wanting to get on the show quite a bit. I actually was talking to him earlier in the program. Uh, today's guest is Chris Dunn. And I was mentioning to him that I had, uh, I had him at a, a conference at UC Berkeley in California. And it was 12 years ago. 
November 22nd that he was our keynote at New Science Ancient Wisdom Conference, a conference I produced many, many years ago. And um, <laughs> uh, his work at that time was the Giza Power Plant, which was uh, uh, had just come out, and he was touring quite a bit. I was fascinated by it. I, I had a, a, a friend at uh, at the time it was Bering Company, which is now uh, Inner Traditions and Bering Company. And um, I believe Chris was um, touring quite a bit then, and he came out and uh, was, like I said, a keynote. And it was very, uh, I mean, it was it was it was it was a groundbreaking talk. His his research and his discoveries. Uh, are referred to continuously, and I was just mentioning to him that at some point they're going to have to name a theory or a process after him, simply because everyone refers to Chris Dunn. And uh, you know, if it's Ancient Aliens or the History Channel or it's a, a special uh, uh, TV program, there's even periods and points of reference to him where he's not even given credit. So uh, I'm not sure how he feels about it, but I, I would think that he would wonder uh, what's going on. So, Chris, are you there? Hi. Hi, Cliff. <clears throat> Hi, Cliff. How are you? I'm great. Great. Good. Glad to have you on the program. Um, oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, no, I. There's so much to talk to you about. I mean, uh, you really broke open the whole. Uh, understanding that we have now of um, what could be we consider modern tooling or modern machinery uh, cutting not only the uh, structures at the Giza Pyramid but in other locations around um, around the world. Uh, but, but before I ask you that, let, let me talk about that. Let me let me just ask you this: Do you feel uh, vindicated now that when you watch TV, people refer to your your work? Uh, do, you, do you think that's something that is um, uh, you feel you know that you're satisfied with that that people are finally looking at these these ancient structures with a different eye? Um, I think that, that is very uh, satisfying to, to have uh, <clears throat> so many people who uh, are now uh, saying the same thing, essentially. Um, Certainly not everybody. I mean, you know, I have my detractors just like anybody would. Uh, but um, people are, are, look, are looking at new artifacts or artifacts that have not been described before and, and uh, recognizing the same uh, kind of quality of uh, craftsmanship on them and the same precision and, and remarking that... Uh, that they look like they w were produced by a machine. Now, I must say <clears throat> that uh, I wasn't the first to to uh, actually do that. The first person to describe the abilities of the ancient Egyptians and their, um, you know, the the machines that they possibly used was William Flinders Petrie. In uh, 1883, uh, he has a book. He had published a book. It's called Pyramids and Temples of Giza. And uh, in that in that book, he had a a chapter on the methods, uh, mechanical methods of the ancient Egyptians, and he described 
the tools that um, the the evidence that you know the artifacts seem to indicate were used, such as mm-hmm. circular saws, um, hole saws, or you know tree panning tools, uh, things of that nature, and um, and also the efficiency of them. The famous Petri core number seven uh, that he puzzled over for a long time, and there was tremendous debate back in back in the 1880s about this uh, core number seven, which is now housed in the Petrie Museum. And Mm -hmm. what is significant about that artifact is that it shows that the tool that produced it cut into granite at a feed rate of about a hundred thousandths of an inch per revolution of the drill. And and that uh, made my... my, uh, It got my attention. I mean, certainly uh, that to any... Uh, te- technician or t- toolmaker, engineer, whatever they, uh, or even you know ba- a backyard kind of uh, DIY guy uh, who uses <laughs> yeah. carpenter tools on a regular basis, they're like, uh, "Wow, yeah, okay, I, I can uh, I can see that something's going on here that um, that has not been described properly by the tools that you find in the archaeological record," and so. Um, of course, every any engineer or uh, technician will try and figure out what tools were used, and that's where you you bump into uh, a problem with with the established conventional archaeologists and Egyptologists, is because they don't think along those lines. They limit themselves to the to the uh, tools that are found in the archaeological record, and that's it. They they're not allowed mm-hmm. to imagine. Uh, I mean, and if they did, they wouldn't go as far as I did, which was to propose that they had very sophisticated tools and were using electricity and and things of that nature. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but now people, more people are traveling to Egypt. More people are traveling to South America. They're they're going to all the India, the, the, you know, to Lebanon, to all these ancient sites. And um, whereas before. They did not, you know. They were looking more at the uh, magnificence of the of the uh, sites and the and yes. even and just you know uh, considering the difficulty in assembling such large blocks because you do have all over the world the uh, these megalithic uh, gigantic blocks of stone which we don't you know it's not our practice to get the heaviest block we can find to to create a building but they mm-hmm. seem to be uh common in the ancient world where they would mm. have, use these multi ton blocks whereas we would uh, cut them down into smaller elements and right. uh and glue them together but uh well, let me ask you let me ask you was it apparent to, to you when you first went to Egypt that the, these the temples and the uh, the buildings were cut with machines. Was it was it that apparent, or did you get caught up in the beauty and the splendor of these megalithic uh, stone buildings, and you had to come back a second time to be more appreciative? <laughs> second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time. <laughs> yes, the well, you know that's interesting because. Um, I first went to Egypt in '86, but I started to research and write about Egypt in, uh, in 1977. And uh, interestingly enough, you had a guest on uh, earlier, um, uh, Dr. Arlen Andrews, 
And I met him in, I think, the tail end of 1997, 1977, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And so um, he finally went to Egypt uh, with me in 2008. We thought that we would see the uh, the new millennia in on top of the Great Pyramid, drinking a bottle <laughs> of champagne. But uh, but that never happened. But in 2008, we went we went to Egypt together. But uh, going back to that period of time, um, Arlen has always been extremely helpful to me and uh, always very encouraging. Um, and I, I was riding the Giza power plant. Uh, I just started writing it when I when I had uh, when we made contact, and mm. and so you know we had a lot to talk about because he ha- he had an interest in in the pyramids, um, and I showed him some of the work that I was doing, and he was particularly uh, taken by the analysis of uh, what Petrie described in his book and and. Mm-hmm. And so I was. I was uh, actually at that time. I was um, <clears throat> having trouble finding a publisher, or you know, finding somebody to look at my manuscript. And mm-hmm. um, he suggested. He said, "Well, you know, what I had read is that uh, uh, it's kind of like a catch twenty-two. You know, you you can't yeah. get your work published until you've been published." <laughs> <laughs> and so right. the path, the path. So basically, you start, you start out you, uh, at the bottom. You, um, I, 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 I approached uh, Analog Magazine, uh, <clears throat> and Alan was uh, a, a frequent contributor to Alan, to Analog Magazine. That's Analog Science right. Fiction, Science Fact. And he said, "Well, you know, Chris," he said, he said uh, you, "What you're better off to do is to get." Um, a section of your book, which is as complete as possible. In other words, you know, it's a, co- a cohesive, coherent um, section where it doesn't run on to, you know, other areas of the book, or you know, unless you would truncate that. But the uh, but the uh, the best way to do that is to get a section and have it published in a magazine. And uh, right. why don't you submit it to Stanley Schmidt, who is the editor of Analog Magazine in New York. So um, it was uh, 1983 at the time where, um, where where Stanley Schmidt accepted my accepted my proposal and uh, and recommended mm-hmm. some changes. And I, uh, I I actually met Stanley at, the, at in 1983 at the World uh, Science Fiction Convention in in Baltimore. Um, really nice guy, but uh, I had I had just purchased a uh, a Commodore sixty four computer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, you don't hear about those much anymore, that's for sure. Right, and 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 so you know I was very fearful of um, of how an editor might might take the submission of a manuscript on a dot matrix printer. Where the G stood above the line instead of hanging below, you, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, I asked him that. Uh, I, I asked him if he would accept that matrix, because, you know, because I was in the process of doing the revisions that he had suggested. And and he said, "Yep, no problem there. You know, all for Good. the advance of technology." 
And so that's uh, <clears throat> that was how um, that's how I started. And and the article was published in 19 August of 1984. Um, and it 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 did very well. It got a lot, quite a lot of attention, and it, it really sparked a lot of debate too. Um, of course. And so that that was you know my my uh, link with Ireland and you know obviously after that we you know we became fast friends and uh, we we used to live nearby and then he moved away and then I moved away but uh, we always, we always remained friends. He's a let me uh, ask you he's this. A brilliant, brilliant yeah. engineer. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, it was great to have on our program. Yes. Let me ask you. This is this is something I've I've after reading your books. Have you? Do you have any reference points to the, uh, on the technology on the on the on the machining work that shows an evolution of the technology? In other words, did you find or have you found early works in uh, stonemasonry or carving that has like an inception date when technology was used was used? All the way up to say the Ramsey sec- two sec- uh, sculptures that you highlight in your book. That's a very good question. Um, the evolution of technology. I can only the only uh, the only thing I can refer to is the uh, how, how technology has progressed today, and. <clears throat> The uh, progression of technology has been in uh, the development of materials for for cutting, uh, the development of machines to uh, refine machines so that they uh, cut more precisely, and um, and also uh, computers. So when I when I started out. Um, there there were no CNC machines, no computer, no computer guided mm-hmm. machines at all, and that was in 1961. By the time I left the company I was working at, it was 1968. They had just brought in a um, a, compu- a computer numerical control driller. So mm. all the advances in technology in manufacturing today. I mean, before that. The, you had you had developments and you had improvements in in technology, but the 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 biggest improvement in the technologies has been in uh, in computer control and uh, and and computer aided drafting and machining. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at Cliff, if you're looking at <clears throat> the products um, that uh, come off. A machine in 1960 or 1950 or 1960. Say you take a, a lathe, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and a good craftsman turns a shaft on a lathe, and you take that shaft and you put it side by side with a shaft that has been turned on a lathe today, uh, except that the the lathe is computer driven. Um, and you take the machines away, you have no vision and no insight into what machines, what the machines were like that produced them. Then they pretty much look the same. If they're held, uh, held to the same, the same quality, they have the same tool marks, 
because the the uh, rotation rotational tool knocks um and essentially they look the same so when you look at the like a granite box in, in the Serapium in, in Egypt um mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you see these perfectly flat surfaces two within certain tolerances of course and then you look at the the Ramses statue where there is evidence of both uh, in my opinion the machining of of the uh of these heads but also areas where there was some handwork performed you can see evidence of both and and the uh, you know there are there are parallels in in modern manufacturing too where you would have uh, machine work done and then some very fine detailing perhaps done by hand um just just as a matter of economy mm-hmm. um an example would be you take a basic I-beam, which is produced automatically. You know, you've got these machines that pour the metal and they extrude the metal, roll the, these beams out. Uh, they come in certain lengths, certain sizes. They're shipped to a, a job site uh, or they're shipped to a, a, a metal working shop. And they are, they are uh, specialized or customized for whatever job that they go into. And then they may hit the uh, hit the job site and, and be further modified by, who, you know, the erectors at the, at the job site. So, you know, those are the things that mm-hmm. happen uh, all the time. And, and, mm. that one of the pro- and I'm glad you really brought this up because it's a, it's a very important point to make. And mm-hmm. that is because when you, lo- when you look at uh, an object and you say, yeah, this has the mark of machines and it has uh, the, this quality, this precision, these marks. Um, there's always somebody who would like to like to uh, dispel or debunk what you say by pointing out areas that where those conditions do not exist. So... Mm-hmm. In our in the in the uh, engineering world and manufacturing world or even the construction world, both conditions exist, uh, and both uh, states of manufacture exist. In other words, automatic machine, and also handwork on site. <clears throat> and I think mm-hmm. that's where you have to be able to distinguish what's the difference, you know, and how much <clears throat> how much uh, can you how much can you uh, pull from the piece uh, in terms of the type of um, precision that, uh, that is in it? And the only way to do that is to measure it. You have to get down mm-hmm. and measure it. And I have received photographs from people. People send me photographs and say, has this been machined? I always tell them I can't tell by a photograph. You have to be I there. I never in, in, comment yeah. on that. I'd have to measure it in order to uh, see how precise it is, because normally that mm. that, that reveals the quality of the uh, or the the methods used. And you mm. find that I found it in in Egypt, also in South America. Mm. Let's talk so. about uh, the Ramsey sculptures that you spend quite a bit of time uh, discussing in the book. Um, mm. There, the, the the level of precision in the faces and in the ear. And then the nose and the mouth is is uh, you call it too perfect. It's too perfect to be <laughs> hand done. It, it to, yeah. to my mind, 
Chris, it <laughs> seems to me that there was almost an industry dedicated to these sculptures because they're almost identical in so many ways. W- would you mm-hmm. say that's the case, that these that was an actual industry around using this technology to create these uh, uh, megalithic uh, sculptures uh, w- with such a level of perfection? I would say that the um, yes, that definitely they had uh, they had a a protocol for creating them, uh, and they also uh, had a um, a model. You know whether that be that was a computer model or, um, but they they were applying. Uh, they were working towards very precise data points in the crafting of these statues in order to reveal a geometry and precision that uh, Mm -hmm. we see now as Ramses and also other ancient uh, kings and pharaohs. So um, that that is clear to me, is that they they definitely had, uh, were using geometry in a way that uh, has not been revealed before. In other words, it's very clear that they were they were familiar with the ellipse, and mm-hmm. also that the um, they knew what ellipsoids were. Uh, if you look at the crown of uh, Ramses, the, uh, the the white crown, which is an elliptical shape, uh, and it's like a conical shape that goes uh, that's uh, on the head, but it's kind of tilted back. That's a very complex. But uh, uh, it, it, it's complex, but it's it's uh, it's it has a simplistic beauty to it. Uh, in other mm-hmm. words, when when you look at when you go to these crowns in the um, in the Luxor Museum, and the first time I saw them, I was blown away because I was uh, running my my hand over the surface, and it was perfect. Um, perfectly smooth. There's no ripples, no bumps, uh, and uh, but I didn't know what the geometry of them was, and so I was first taken by the crowns because they were, you know, very accessible to to examine, and that that right. was actually in February of 2006, and I had um, <clears throat> I signed up to go with uh, John Anthony West on on his tour as a paying guest. And uh, and you know because I wanted to learn more about uh, Schwella de Lubix and right. you know as my uh, as my uh, <clears throat> as as my life uh, has has progressed that is what happened was uh, is fairly uh, common I go with the focus of uh, intentions of of uh, focusing on one thing and then something else gets my attention. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> after you know after being in the temple for uh, a, a period of time listening to John I, I I I couldn't resist wandering away from the group and uh and, and examining these crowns and and then after that time I uh, I started to I went back the following day and photographed them um I had a a, a, a new digital camera. Uh, mm-hmm. Back then, it was an eight mega, megapixel, which is pretty low res these days. But yeah, um, yeah. but anyway, 
and I also had my computer with me, so I, I was able to uh, bring them into my graphics program and and uh, examine them uh, in a way that uh, checked the, the symmetry. Is one side the mm -hmm. same as the other side when you're looking at it 2D? And mm -hmm. and it was. It was incredibly precise. Um, so certainly, totally unexpected. And you know, even that in itself speaks to a, a, a culture that had advanced uh, far more than Egyptologists have given them credit for in terms of mm -hmm. their abilities to to uh, create these shapes and what they used to, in order to do them. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about the Ramses sculptures because they're like again they're featured in your book, but are any two so similar that they look like they could have been molded? I mean, it looks to me, based on your analysis, is that these are uh, they're carved from some either machine template or uh, uh, some, as you call it, model. Uh, which, to my mind, means that there, it was a pre-programmed, um, for lack of a better word, software that was uh, uh, digested by uh, a machine, uh, and it was maybe a block of st stone was put into a some kind of a chamber or something, and then it was cut. Or do you think it was a more? Do you, do you, do you hypothesize that it was maybe done by individuals? where one guy would start with the top, another guy would come in and do the face, another guy would do the arms or whatever. Can you take it that no, far? I, I think there is a, you know, it, I, I've been raised in an environment where there is a division of labor. So you have, uh, <clears throat> you have people who will uh, do rough machining, um, you, you have your people who quarry, the people who uh, haul, the, haul the materials, um, mm -hmm. and then it comes into a manufacturing plant. You have roughers and finishers, um, and so yeah, I mean, uh, you would have a, a, a situation where you'd have several classes of, of people working on on the uh, on the object. Um, and then you may have, you know, some fine details at the end because you can actually see uh, on on the face um, under a microscope if you look very 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 closely um, the, the tool marks, uh, the definitely tool marks. There. Well, as you have read the chapters in my book, you know that, but the um, because I show them very clearly. And so, but it looks like, particularly around the uh, eyes, it looks like a hand tool has, has has been brought in after the face was machined, just to create the, the uh, a sharp intersection between where the eyelids are and the uh, the eyeballs and the, and the face, and similarly on the mouth, where the uh, the vermilion border of the lips, um, they are undercut slightly and made a little sharper by the introduction of a tool uh, to, um, to, uh, to uh, create a, you know, a more defined outline of the, of the lips. Um, and so that's where you have an ex a perfect example of um, 
something being made, the most important aspect, the most important feature on the the Ramsey statue is the is the uh, face and the, the what that represents, and mm -hmm. the, the the nose, uh, but the 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 real care uh, and precision has to be in the geometry, the geometry of the, the face, and it's where you look at um, a mirror image of of the the face, and you overlay that mirror image, um, and you can see the perfection from side to side. You've got this uh, this symmetry from side to right. side. And mm -hmm. when you consider the the the, uh, the jaw, so take the jawline for instance. You know the jawline is moving in 3D, uh, three dimension. You got your X Y Z. So it's not just a simple two dimensional profile that we're looking at. But when you look at it in two dimensions, you're looking at uh, you're looking at a, a perfect circle or a radius that is uh, the same from one side to the other. So that is is a uh, definitely a very telling uh, and good evidence of um, of machining not to say that people have not been attempting uh, <clears throat> attempting um, this kind of work in terms of uh, symmetry uh, in the, you know with with just hand tools or using um, using Templates and things of that nature are manual templates, mm -hmm. and, um, but the, um, the the precision, as we look at, at uh, the Ramses, is three dimensional. It's not two dimensional, and uh, so that is uh, significant to me. And then, of course, the elements that go into making it, the uh, the uh, geometry was very very faithfully executed. Um, mm. And the geometry indicates that you know they had a certain geometric protocol and measurement that they that they were using, and uh, and there is a certain harmony, you know, the harmonic proportions of of the, this geometry and that, and the correspondences with uh, the uh, the three four five triangle grid and uh, the. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, everything is uh, radial or circular, and so right. what you have is a very, very pleasing face. And there are other un other unique features on on the face too, such as um, the eyes. The eyes, uh, when you look at the profile, the eyes are, are looking down, and, and you, the, what has been built into the statue is is um, as a visual compensation so that when somebody who is uh, looking up at the statue um, they will see a um, a face that is smiling rather than the mouth uh, turned turned down uh, mm. because Ramsey's mouth is is a, a significant uh, feature too because it has it has a, a full radius to it uh, from one side of the lips to the other, and mm -hmm. uh, it's you know I mean it's hard to find anybody who has walks around that that way naturally, but if you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> certainly this certainly not this old part that's for sure, <laughs> but but if you have uh, but if you have the uh, 
you know, if if you want to present a pleasing image to people who are standing below, and you make the lips look natural, uh, then when they are, are when they are viewed from below, they will they look. It looks like the mouth would be uh, t- would be turned upside down. You know, they would have a frown more than mm-hmm. a more than a smile on their on their face. But uh, you know, that's just another feature that is. The, the, the statue is inc- the statues are incredible. I mean, the detail is, is yeah. amazing what they were doing. Just the, the you know the attachment of the of the elbows with the uh, with the thighs, um, <clears throat> that was done, and you know it's a to for uh, strength. It 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 gives mm-hmm. the, the statue strength instead of having you know arms that are free or you have a gap between. Between the uh, the forearm and 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 the thigh, for sure, anybody mm-hmm. sitting naturally would have that. But the statues, they they took down the uh, the elbow so that so that the forearm would would be would, would, would be attached to the thigh and and provide the yeah. statue strength. And it's, then the beard, Ramsey's, the beard. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was okay, going to well, ask you the, the other the other yeah. the other thing the other thing is the engineering and manufacturing strength is the um, the the headdress which is attached to the shoulders and the the false beard attached to the chest. So mm-hmm. those serve as gussets and provide strength to the head. Whereas if if the head was uh, loose, you know, or if it was just mm-hmm. uh, without the headdress, then it would be a, a lot weaker. Okay. Um, Ramses II lived, uh, what, is it like 5,000 years ago? Is that is that the rough estimate for him? Uh, when these sculptures oh, no, would have been... No, no they're... What, what, is the, what, what is the estimated date I, You know, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I, I don't have the fixed day, date in front of me okay. on that. Uh, okay. But I know they're uh, a lot newer. They're, they're, they 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 come later than the pyramids for sure. So they yeah. may be maybe Middle Kingdom or Late Kingdom, but not okay. uh, not five thousand. Not even well, not, not five thousand. Dates the dates are to me. You could say five ten thousand. Um, I think what has happened is that they've been misappropriated and assigned to Ramses. I don't think these statues. Belong to the uh, that period at all? They because the uh, you know the quality of the manufacturing goes way further back than that, uh, and they, 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 it's kind of similar to the pyramids and the uh, the boxes in the Serapium that have all this this tremendous precision, and also similarities in the and uh, the the tools. Or at least the shape of the tools that would have created them, um, mm-hmm. in that they they share common common features like a, a the, the radius of, uh, in in the corners of these objects. And, uh, um, a lot of them have the same radius. Uh, so, okay. yeah. So, but we, but there you're looking at fourth dynasty to eighteenth dynasty, and uh, the, mm-hmm. you know the Serapium is uh, what. Uh, thousand years BC, something like that. The uh, mm-hmm. and you know, as far as Ramses, I, I couldn't give you an exact date on that. I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm 
I'm but have the, you found other examples since the book came out, Chris? Have you found any similar uh, examples of this tech of the Ramses II uh, machining technology on anything else? Any other sculptures uh, that are uh, effigies of uh, a king or queen? Well, I think when you certainly when you find when you find uh, something of this nature, um, then you have you know you begin to recognize the same the, the same qualities in other statues too. Um, <clears throat> The uh, what I have to be careful with, though, is that I've spent I, I've devoted most of my time just focusing on the Ramses, and while other statues may have the appearance of that that same quality, I have not done the examination of them that I did with the Ramses statue. But mm-hmm. I would say that they are, you know, they're open to be uh, examined too. There are some. Quite some remark. There's some remarkable examples uh, in the British Museum in London, um, where you know some really beautiful, beautiful uh, busts, um, the, and even a Ramses a Ramses statue there too. But they are they're, uh, they're some marvelous examples of what I would what I would consider to be uh, machined statues. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, in the um, Giza power plant, uh, you speculate uh, and give evidence that the uh, pyramid was created as a generator, uh, energy generator. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is over a decade old. Do you still feel that it was a generator? And and uh, how uh, do you find or feel that generated energy was delivered to other parts of the plateau? Yeah, the uh, I, I haven't backed off of that theory. Um, mm-hmm. In the book, I, I said that it's open to challenge, it's open to uh, review, and if other evidence was to was to show up or was to turn up that uh, would cause me to rethink the the theory, um, then I would, you know, accept what new information came along, good solid information, and mm-hmm. and uh, revise or reject my original theory. And that's the way science works. Um, <clears throat> while there has been, you know, challenges to it and arguments against it, um the evidence the, the evidence that i present has never been a part of that um so-called challenge um and so what i what i have maintained is that you know anybody who would want to replace the uh, the power plant theory with a better theory uh, needs to needs to have a, a a reason, or you know, you need to be able to explain every piece of evidence that is in the Great Pyramid, um, mm-hmm. in terms of you know what it was what it was used for. And as time has progressed, um, the new evidence that I've turned up, and also others have turned up, have have been. Uh, 
I've reinforced the theory rather than rather than uh, dispel it. And uh, okay. one of the mm-hmm. one of those is the, the the scorch marks on the ceiling of the Grand Gallery, which uh, was predictable in the Giza power plant uh, when you consider that uh, it proposed that there was an explosion inside the Great Pyramid in the King's Chamber, uh, and and so that would explain the scorch marks in the Grand Gallery, and you know. If, I, I propose that the Grand Gallery uh, housed these resonators, and the resonators um, were ha- were placed and assembled in in the slots along the the ramps of the uh, on both sides of the gallery, and mm-hmm. um, and then you know when you look at, where, at these slots and you and you look at the ceiling above and you see these scorch marks, uh, it's it's apparent that there was, uh, uh, you know, a fire going. You know, that whatever the, when the explosion happened, it caused a lot of destruction of the equipment mm-hmm. in the, in the grand gallery. That there's that, mm-hmm. and there is the uh, the Gantenbrink's door. Um, and for you know somebody who wants to uh, review this further, I have several articles on my website. Uh, and the website is geezerpower.com. Um, <clears throat> there, there's a lot of articles on the uh, on Gantenbrink's door and the evidence leading to it, uh, what was behind it, um, mm-hmm. and beyond uh, Gantenbrink's door. And then, uh, and then there was uh, some recent uh, activity there where they discovered this writing. Um, on the uh, on the floor behind in in the space at, beyond the yes. Brink's door. Yes. So, yes. 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 So. And, um, um, so. D- d- yeah. Do you think it was electricity that was produced in the Giza pyramid, or was it another form of energy that was converted to electricity? Because you did you did say that you felt that the machinery on the carvings of. Uh, that were used for the carvings uh, were uh, as electricity. You used that term, but maybe it was some other energy? Well, the uh, electromagnetic energy, that's electricity. So I I propose that uh, the evidence seemed to suggest to me that they were uh, generating uh, microwaves, uh, microwave energy. Uh, And the reason I... I, uh, Suggested that was that the, uh, the the shafts coming into the into the king's chamber on the north side, there the, the shaft coming into the north side of the king's chamber was the dimensions were 8.4 by 4.8, and uh, that would be suitable for a hydrogen microwave. Uh, the hmm. uh, and and then opposite that shaft on the other side. Uh, on the south, in the south wall is what appears to be what well, looks like um, an, uh, a horn antenna, a microwave horn antenna. So it's like a you know a catcher's mitt there, in, <laughs> cut into the granite, where uh, and then a, a shaft leading from that to the outside. So that was a part hmm. of, that was one of the reasons um, I I actually uh, proposed that they were they were 
creating microwave energy, converting okay. hydrogen gas into uh, microwave. Okay, and then so 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 how it, how do you speculate that that energy was delivered to the machinists who used their tools to cut uh, sculptures and blocks and things like that? Well, the um, I would I would say that you could deliver it uh, wirelessly, um, or you could deliver oh, okay. it over wires. I mean, you know, it depends on um, it depends Excellent. on the um, it depends yeah. on yeah what methods they choose. I mean, if you have a source of energy and you know about electricity, then um, you use whatever state of the art equipment or technology that you're aware of at the time. And well, I thought you were essentially. I thought, that's what I, yeah, I thought you, when you said uh, microwave, I thought for a minute, okay, well that's wireless. They're shooting out microwaves, and then they have a a receiver somewhere that uh, maybe downsteps it or whatever, and then it's channeled into a uh, a device, and then you know, then they have their cutting and machining tools. And that, is that what you're speculating? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean that's that's a uh, a scenario that I I could imagine. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It could it could have been something <laughs> something else, but uh, but uh, definitely that would be one way to do it. It's it's, uh, it's so mind blowing to consider that. You know, I mean, like that's like that's kind of like beyond us today. It's so far. Uh, I mean, it, it, we, we kind of parallel that with our cell phones and things like that and microwave uh, ovens, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's, you know, it's hard to say. Wow. You know, it's hard to say. We we are we're kind of uh, the technical technological environment that we live in has been uh, is the result of uh, you know a rather haphazard development of of new of different technologies to deliver services and you know to make people money. And um, it's like you know the the battle between Edison and Tesla, and uh, between AC right. AC and DC, and and then uh, you know associated with that is the um, how fraught with uh, you know uh, uncertainty that kind of process is because a lot of times it depends on the people who are holding the purse. Strings. Well, always it exactly. depends on yeah. who's holding the purse strings. So, you know what their agenda is, and uh, one thing and another. But ultimately, the, you know, we our society has developed, and we have using these technologies. But it could have been, could have gone a different way. Um, mm. Who knows? You know, I mean, it's like was Tesla in his proposals to. Uh, energize the world wirelessly uh, and freely. Um, would his ideas have worked if he'd have received the backing and the funding to to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Tesla supporters think, yeah, that he, it could have done that, but we don't know because it hasn't received uh, it hasn't received the you know the um, the funding for uh, full scale development. Yes. Uh, it didn't when he exactly. was alive and. And then it kind of uh, faded away after he died. So, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's kind of like uh, when I wrote the Giza power plant, I I just put the information out there, and I didn't know you know what kind of legs it would grow, 
whether it would uh, die on the vine or whether it would, you know, it would uh, continue to be to be read. And well, for at least fourteen years, it's uh, was it sixteen years? Sixteen years now that yeah. it's been published, and uh, yeah. So it's you know, and then you know that that is a, a you know a small period of time compared to the age of the pyramids. But the uh, but sixteen years later, and you know, books are very important. I think. When you look at uh, Petrie's book, uh, he wrote his a hundred hundred years ago, you know, and then mm-hmm. I picked it up a hundred years later, and and we start talking about Petrie's work again. Yeah. So I mean, Petrie yeah. was Petrie was an Egyptologist. Why why is there so much resistance to your discoveries and your uh, basic clar- clarification on the machining of these? Artifacts. Well, when, <laughs> the uh, people are very resistant to new ideas, even if the the ideas sound relatively sane. And I think that uh, if an idea uh, to you know, somebody in academia as an Egyptologist would would consider my ideas to be insane. And so hmm. we're not worthy of, of even discussing. So you know that's that's the uh, what we're faced with. The only uh, I think the only the, what would make that turn is um, a greater acceptance of you know a recognition of the uh, the technical abilities in in machining, which is why I work very hard and long to gather as much evidence to support the machining aspects uh, and abilities of the great of the uh, of the ancient egyptians um mm-hmm. because that to me uh, is a it's a, a kind of a easier uh, i think it can be accepted a lot easier by by people who would normally be uh would be against the idea of, of lost civilizations, highly technical lost civilizations. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like eventually they're going to have to be able to explain how these uh, they 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 can't mankind cannot continue to ignore the uh, the evidence cut into the stones of these ancient sites. They, uh, you know, they. They have so far. They've been able to maintain the status quo in the in in our education system. But mm-hmm. um, I threw out a challenge in the lost technologies of ancient Egypt, and and that is is that we don't, you know, if we find evidence in the archaeological record of tools that we used. Uh, or that we claim that they were used in ancient times, then what we need to do to prove it is to replicate the most difficult things that the ancient Egyptians did. Not the simplest thing, not to, you know, just uh, take a, a piece of copper and uh, apply some sand on, on the surface of granite and, and grind a slot in the, uh, in the granite. <laughs> Anybody can do that. And then say, see, we know that we can, uh, we know that uh, you can remove granite using uh, copper and and sand. Okay. 
Now, how do you explain this? Because you have to <laughs> you, you have to be able to reproduce a Ramsey statue, in my, in my opinion, and a uh, a Serapium a box in the Serapium. If if yeah. you're going to hold to those ideas that these simple tools uh, built built the ancient world, then you have to prove it. Because yeah. it, you know we're That's a good point. It, yeah, I mean it's experimental uh, archaeology and science. It's science, you know. We, you don't, you don't write a, a good paper that uh, about cold fusion, and say, yeah, uh, I found this and I found this and I found this, and so I put everything together. You put everything together in my mind, and you've got cold fusion. I mean that's essentially, yeah. you know, that you're going to say, okay, great. Now show me, prove it. And that's what we need to do more with uh, Egyptologists, I feel, who are still mm-hmm. stuck in the past in terms of, you know, the tools that were used. Yeah, we've had a couple of uh, young uh, Egyptologists on the program, and they're fighting against the system, but uh, it's a little bit of an uphill mm-hmm. battle because the, 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 uh, the discipline is steeped in the history of, of these uh, of these false uh, understandings, and so it's tough. It's a it's a tough uh, it's a tough tough hill to climb. Um, we only have a yes, few minutes yeah. left, and and I want to go over some of your uh, findings in uh, South America. You traveled to Bolivia and uh, Peru, and uh, uh, I have read a couple of articles. One specifically on some of the research you did at Pumapuco. Uh, where you actually brought some engineering tools and uh, to do some uh, analysis of um, some of the buildings. Um, I've uh-huh. never been there, but there's uh, some people speculate that those are poured uh, reinforced walls and blocks, uh, some form of cement. What, what did you discover there? Um, <laughs> the... Uh... I, they were very precise uh, features on on the blocks, and uh, I, I measured some of them with a an indicator gauge and surface gauge, and a flat mm-hmm. surface within uh, within a half thousandth of an inch uh, around a 360 degree arc. Um, uh, that you know that makes me sit up and and gets my attention. When you look at the <laughs> blocks themselves. Um, they they're natural stone. You can talk to Robert Shocks. He's been there many times. He he will tell you it's natural stone. If you are prone to consider the um, the poured stone theory, um, then there are you have to explain some very very difficult uh, technical details. In other words, what you have on a lot of these blocks are uh, cavities that have negative drafts in them, and so if you've got a um, a mold and you're setting any any kind of material and you have a negative draft, you're not going to be able to release your mold. Um, and and then the other thing is a lot of times you would have if you are creating uh, blo- blocks that uh, are the same, they have the same appearance, same features. Um, 
you would you generally you would use a mold it's the same mold to create many blocks i mean that is to the, you know the whole the whole reason for um casting forging and casting is that you're not you, you know you create the shape one time and then you use it multiple times by pouring metal or whatever material you have into into the molds and with the, that process, you would find that the measurements uh, from one block to the next uh, do not vary that much. The uh, <clears throat> and so in 2011, when I went to when I went to um, Pumapunku, I took um, some inside micrometers and also um, I took the uh, some verniers. Uh, the inside micrometers were were large enough. Uh, I could span 36 inches with them. But I also had surface gauges and indicators, and, um, and so I was able to uh, check the dimensions on the H blocks, the the famous H blocks. And, right. And yeah. The, yeah. And they were not the same. I mean, the dimensions were were different. Um, hmm. And I, and I, I think uh, that I had an article. I published an article in Atlantis Rising. It was in uh, in January, early this year, of uh, my visit to uh, Pumapunku and discussing the H blocks and other blocks that uh, have these very fine uh, features on them. Uh, grooved is one block that has a groove down the length of it and holes drilled into mm-hmm. the groove. So I was able to measure the uh, the distance from the groove to the to the corner of the uh, the, the, the adjacent surface, and I <clears throat> and and that and also the uh, the distance between the holes, and the uh, the distance from the, the the face to the edge of the groove was quite precise, um, but the distance between the holes uh, that were fairly random they were not precise at all um, hmm. they vary quite a bit and uh, hmm. unfortunately my my tables the tables I supplied to accompany the article were not published and uh, but that's where you know for me a guy like me the devil's always in the details but uh, <laughs> I think for the average reader um, you know they just like a good story so but it was a good story. I think you're right. <laughs> uh, was, were, were there um, definitive uh, machining marks on any of those uh, H squares or any of the foundation that it's all looks like some kind of earthquake went through there and kind of shuffled it all around? But did you determine that there were some some markings that would sh- reveal the tool a tool mark of some kind of big power machinery? I wish I could say yes. But I, I uh, that's that's the real puzzle um, about it, and it could be that the you know the uh, I just hadn't got uh, uh, I just hadn't examined it in the right way. I mean, there's uh, I didn't use a microscope on the surface of the stone. Um, that would probably help. Um, but okay. um, as far as conventional kind of tool marks that one would expect if you were using a uh, a grinding machine or a milling machine or 
or something like that. That didn't seem that didn't seem to be uh, anything. You know, there were no regular uh, swirling patterns that uh, you know are associated with those kind of processes. Um, right. That I that I could detect. Uh, you know, somebody else may have a better luck than me. Um, but like I said, um, I think we were talking earlier, when when uh, you're on a tour with a tour group, um, I generally focus all my time, try to spend my time with the guests. And, uh, right. and to do the kind of research that I do, um, I, I have to go back later and... Uh, and and spend more time and uh, take better equipment with me. Um, right. That happened in Egypt, and that will happen in South America ultimately. Gotcha. You so know, in the, the, in the, the few minutes, go ahead. Go go ahead. I, I was going to say, in the few minutes we have left, uh, I wanted. I mean, you have studied what I call anomalous uh, machining for over 20 years, 25 probably, over 25 years. Have you come to some conclusion on the world during the time these things were, were created? I mean, is it is it a loft? I mean, uh, some authors call it a civilization X that left traces of their uh, advanced machining, the advanced technology. Do, do you think it's, uh, I mean, and, and then if you study the, the Vedas, the uh, Yugas, uh, the Hindu history of the world, it goes, you know, according to them, it goes back hundreds of thousands of years, which would give rise to multiple civilizations who could develop uh, sophisticated technologies and then through uh, self-termination or uh, a global catastrophe of some nature were wiped off the planet. I'm interested mm-hmm. to, to learn what your feeling is as to the progenitor. The, uh, was it a? I mean, it's so easy to just fall down and say, "Well, it's a, it was Atlantis, Atlantis, Atlantis." Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. where where well, it could be, a, a, yeah, a a, 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 a a world we just don't know about that that uh, had an inception, uh, inception period developed their own technology, mm-hmm. developed their own engineering, and then just vanished. I'm just curious about well, what your yeah. opinion is. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's obvious to me, and the uh, the, the evidence points to a, um, uh, a worldwide civilization, or at least what, what we have um, experienced in, in our history is that uh, these technologies may develop in um, one part of the world and then be exported to another part of the world, um, but it doesn't—it it doesn't end up in every corner of the world. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, the manufacturing of airplanes um, um, generally grew in North America, and um, and then you know the Boeing became the uh, the heavy hitter in terms of eliminating the competition or at least reducing their their footprint in the industry 
but now you mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, uh, the Europeans with their Airbus and, the, mm-hmm. you know, their introduction of those airplanes, which, um, you know, very sophisticated machines. But there's no other, um, no other country that builds them to that scale. Uh, they have <laughs> some commuter jets being developed in Japan, in Brazil. Uh, they have them in Brazil. They, they actually build them there. But, um, you know, there are other areas that that uh, are, are attempting to enter into that market and, and develop mm-hmm. their own. But uh, right now, um, as it stands, we find that technology uh, on two continents, pretty much. Um, and the same as you, if you look in, into prehistory, you have the Egyptian technology, uh, which is evident. And then if you go to South America, um, I find South America more of a challenge than Egypt in a way because uh, the way they uh, they built uh, their their structures is. Is unbelievable. It's quite remarkable, and how they how they did. I mean, the wall at Sacsayhuaman, the and you know the twelve twelve uh, faces on a block with other blocks yeah. coming in and fitting them perfectly. And these are huge multi-ton blocks, and you know, and you look at the uh, there's no geometric protocol that is. Uh, immediately obvious that would indicate that they were created by a machine because what we know about machines is machines move in linear axes and there's there's no flat surfaces at Sacsayhuaman that you know they're very random um very random uh, contours on on the surfaces but they all fit together beautifully uh, that's a, a real mystery to me and um, you know the other sites are a real mystery. I mean, the Machu Picchu is very beautiful, but uh, there's there isn't as much what I consider to be advanced kind of. Uh, I don't you know there's no signs of machining that I I could point to at, uh, mm-hmm. at Machu Picchu. They have some impressive, uh, you know, an impressive temple where the very large blocks are are, are used. Um, but as far as the quality of the uh, of the work, uh, you have to go you know, have to go to Bolivia and to Pumapunku to find work that one could say, yeah, I can pretty much uh, conclude that they were creating these using some kind of machines. Now, how the tools were guided, how they were powered, that is another matter. But the geometry and the precision. Is is the the smoking gun, just like mm-hmm. in Egypt. Interesting. But as far as uh, ancient culture, worldwide culture, uh, I I think they. I'm not sure about the communication from one to the other. Um, it seems that they they did have some. Uh, <clears throat> they did find cocaine or nicotine in the in some some old mummies in Egypt that uh, would have come mm-hmm. from. Uh, the New World, the South America, but uh, other than that, the, and uh, I think my friend Stephen Mailer, he has noted uh, uh, some similarities between uh, 
the patterns in a temple in Egypt and and the and the uh, the Mayan uh, symbols. So uh, that's you know there uh, you you could uh, there is has been some kind of uh, sharing of information over over the, the continents. I think um, mm-hmm. Atlantis. Um, you know we have. We have a, a, a civilization in, that I believe had, um, whether, whether it was called Atlantis or something else, but it uh, it was a uh, highly advanced. When you consider the uh, what they left behind, you have to envision what the infrastructure was to create it, and then what other kind of um, Technologies and uh, abilities that they they had in that in that particular civilization. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. A turn of the spade. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what uh, what can we expect from you in the near future, Chris? Are you uh, do you have a book in the works? Uh, uh, what what what's on the high? What's on the uh, uh, horizon for for you that we can? Uh, Look forward to. Well, I would. Uh, I wouldn't uh, tell anybody not to hold their breath. I'm notoriously slow at getting <laughs> new books out. The uh, <clears throat> <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, um, I, I'm not in that... the. Uh, yeah, that, that's. I I have written. I I'm, I don't. I've written two books, and the first one. Okay. It was you know it was that was uh, I didn't know if I would write another one after that. I just had this okay this, these ideas in my head and I I just mm-hmm. wrote about them and that kind of yes. uh, that kind of kind of up a, opened up a whole different uh, focus for me uh, coming from yeah. a background of manufacturing and that and that was focusing on. Just, just the, um, the the machining and uh, and and the uh, the manufacturing abilities of the ancients. Yeah. Um, well, now you know I, because, as you pointed out, there has been um, a huge interest in that particular aspect, that particular, and then other engineers have come along. And technicians, and they are see, seeing the same and reporting the same. Uh, and in fact, there was a, um, a, a, a documentaries that that recently aired on uh, on the History Channel called Ancient Impossible. And mm-hmm. and I think that was that was the um, the the episodes that uh, that my friend Arlen was uh, he he became rather incensed. Because they yes. they had taken my work and presented my work, but they did not give me any credit. Um, yeah, I I could have appeared in that documentary. I I uh, if I had had if the circumstances, my home circumstances had been different, but they weren't, uh-huh. and I didn't, and I passed up that opportunity. But they did use my book, and I did refer them to an engineer in England who was following my work. Peter Brooks, and he is uh, currently in Egypt, uh, following my footsteps, and he's a retired aerospace engineer. And so, you know, to have um, other engineers, retired 
uh, or, or otherwise taking up taking an interest and uh, getting out there and, and following that's uh, that's basically all I can ask for you know the, uh, I think the so, all yeah. the credit all the credit goes to the uh, the ancient civilizations the people that created these things well and, uh, w- yeah, your your book is a super reference, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, Advanced Engineering in the Temples of the Pharaohs. And I it still, I have a copy of it right in front of me. It still holds its uh, weight, and I don't think uh, uh, there's any disproving. I think it's a solid piece of work, and um, I do hope you... I do hope you continue, Chris, and I think we all do who are a part of our audience here to uh, keep uh, keep at it because uh, without your contributions, I think we're in the dark on the, what the ancients were up to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that quite. I mean, we're, I think we're all a little bit in the dark, but I, I'm, I've been privileged and blessed to have uh, been supported by some incredible people on my path, and... Uh, and so, you know, I don't take all the credit. I've uh, I've been guided and uh, uh, and helped along the way in many different ways, and it's been a real blessing uh, for me. That's for sure. The uh, well, as far as my yeah. next work, I'm I'm I was going to go to South America and do that research that I had hoped I would do, but uh, I'm not sure about that right now. I may I may. Uh, Something is calling me back to Egypt, and uh, and I've also been asked to uh, provide uh, uh, updated information on the Giza power plant, and there's also the uh, possibility and opportunity to do more research and uh, some more experiments with that. So, um, yeah, I mean that's pretty much my what lies in my future. That and uh, retirement. Fantastic. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, program, Chris Dunn, and uh, uh, best to you, and uh, we'll look forward to reading more about your uh, your discoveries. Well, thank you, Cliff. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Right. Thanks again. So um, that was Chris Dunn, uh, and I really strongly adv- advise you to get his book, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, it's put out by Inner Traditions, and uh, it is the number one uh, book on ancient machining in Egypt. Until next time, um, I hope you have a great week. Keep an eye on Facebook, Earth Ancients, Starly New Discoveries from Our Planet's Distant Past. Have a great day. 